Our sermon text and Old Testament reading here is Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. This is the living and abiding Word of God. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarag. After he begot Sarag, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sirug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sirug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram, and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And our New Testament reading is Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, 
lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray now. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again we bow before You and ask You to open our hearts to receive Your Word in faith. Let not our hearts be the hard soil uh, where the seed of Your Word is sown and it does not take root. Let not our hearts be the, the shallow soil where it springs up quickly but is choked out by the cares and concerns of the world. But Lord, make our hearts the good soil by Your sovereign grace. And may we bear fruit a hundredfold. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were living in Mesopotamia, sometime during the events of Genesis 11:10 through 32, which we just read, you might be tempted to look around and ask yourself, where is God? What's He doing? Is He doing anything? Look around, and what do you see? Or you see, in this time, generation after generation of ordinary people getting a little worse, a little more sinful, with each passing generation, each drifting a little farther from God, until they've completely abandoned the worship of God. If you're living in Ur, you've given up the worship of God for worship of the moon and all kinds of other deities. And if you looked around, you would see no great saving works of God. Right, No awesome displays of the power of God. No, no evidence, it would seem, of the saving grace of God in the, in, in, at work in people's lives. And you would look around and, and you would see, see all these things. And what do, you, what do you have? You have a handful of promises, just a couple of them. The one that the Lord gave to Eve back in Genesis 3.15 about a son who would be born to crush the serpent's head, bring us back to the presence of God. And then the promise to Noah that God would never again destroy the earth and that blessing Noah gives to his son Shem that the Lord's presence would be with his descendants. But, but you look around and none of those have been fulfilled. No son born of a woman yet who is crushing the serpent's head and bringing us back to the presence of God and the blessing of God. And, and, and it seems like the Lord's presence has abandoned the line of Shem, which Noah, or that was his blessing on, on Shem, that the Lord would dwell with Shem. So what's going on, right? You, instead, of, instead of fulfillment, all you have is empty promises, it seems. No fulfillment. Or just the years passing by and passing by. And where is God in all this? All these promises of blessing, but very little to show for it. Right? Why is God taking so long? Why does He let the generations go on? Why, why not call Arpaxad or Peleg or Ru? Or one of these other guys? Why does he wait all these generations for Abraham? That's a question we would probably ask if we were back there in Mesopotamia during this time. But it's a question we ask, I think, too, when we look around in our own day. Look around our own lives. Look around our own homes, perhaps. Look around our world, our nation. And we say, is God here? Is he working? Is he doing anything? I don't see awesome displays of his power. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see the evidence of his grace that I want to see, perhaps. Right? We, have, we have promises that he's given us. And we've seen fulfillment that he he's, he's has fulfilled so many of those promises. 
but there's so much unfulfilled and it's been so long. What's he doing? Why is the church seeming to grow less influential in our culture? Not more influential. Where is Jesus? He said 2,000 years ago that he'd be back soon. Where is he? Where is the fulfillment? Right, that, that is the crux of the issue here in Genesis chapter 11 and also in our own lives, walking by faith, not by sight. Um, Ian Duguid, a professor uh, at Westminster that I had, an Old Testament professor, um, has a little book on the life of Abraham. It's really accessible and really helpful, um, and I'm leaning on it heavily tonight. Uh, the title is Abraham, Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. God is going to call Abraham. Um, it's a call to have faith in him, a call to trust him. And, and, and Abraham's life is going to play out in this, in this space between God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise. It's, it's, it, his life is a life where the promise is given but not fulfilled. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting so much of the time for that fulfillment to come. And here in Genesis chapter 11, we're getting the prologue to Abraham's story. And the theme here is, is the same. God is, God is uh, showing us, the, the, right, there's promises, but it, we're, we're looking at the gap between the promise and the fulfillment, the promise and the reality. And we are called to that same faith. Um, we are also living in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment. So let's dive in. The passage here is basically another genealogy. It picks up with Noah's son Shem. If you remember from chapter 9, after the flood, Noah's son uh, Shem, together with his brother Japheth, uh, uh, protect their father's honor. After their father gets drunk, he's lying naked in the tent. Their brother Ham goes in, mocks him, and dishonors his father, which is... Uh, 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 a huge sin, especially in that culture. Um, he invites Shem and Japheth to join them, to join him in that sin. They refuse, they protect their father's honor, and they are blessed for it. Especially Shem, and, and God's blessing on Shem is that uh, the Lord would be with him and be with his descendants. Now, so after that, then you have the, uh, the table of nations, and we get some of that in chapter 10, some of Shem's descendants there, a partial genealogy there of Shem's descendants in chapter 10. That chapter, the genealogy there, is giving us the big picture view. It's zooming out. It's, it's saying, here, here are the nations and how they're spreading throughout the world. But here, this genealogy of Shem's descendants uh, is zooming in. The focus isn't getting wider and showing us all the nations of the world spreading out. The focus is zooming in, getting narrower and narrower on one particular line and then one, one, one particular um, uh, line of descendants within that family. And it zooms all the way in until at the very end of the genealogy, there's just one family left in view. It's Terah and his three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, with their wives and with their children. And it's this family that's going to be at the center of the drama for the rest of the book of Genesis. Abraham, Sarah, Lot, Laban, and all their descendants are going to be the main players now for, for quite a few chapters. Um, so it's all starting here. So this genealogy is doing one thing just on a literary level, right? The author is using this here to, to tie this, to, to, to bridge the, 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 the distance between the Tower of Babel and Abraham's call. Right, he's using it, he's zooming in on this family to set up, okay, here's where they're coming from. It's like when you open a biography and it starts with, you know, here a couple chapters on the, the, the main guy in the biography's parents and grandparents, right? It's, it's setting the stage for that. So it's a literary device and it's helpful for us in that regard. But it's more than that. There's four things here, four key lessons for us 
um, to take away from these verses. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at four lessons uh, that we learn from these verses about, uh, about living in the gap between promise and reality. Number one is this. We learn here as we look over this genealogy and these verses that it is God's grace, not man's works, which preserves his covenant. It's God's grace, not man's works, which preserves his covenant. As this genealogy unfolds, there's no mention of men fearing God. There's no mention of men honoring the Lord, walking with the Lord. We saw that in previous genealogies in Genesis. Noah is singled out, right? Enoch is singled out in these other genealogies as, as men who walked with the Lord. They were godly men. By the time we get to this genealogy, uh, and, and by the time we get to the end of it, the godly line is nowhere to be seen. There's no mention of any, any standouts here. They're all just sinners drifting farther and farther from the Lord with each successive generation. And by the time you get to Terah and his children, this is just another moon-worshipping family in Ur. Looks like every other family in Ur. Nothing special about them. Um, This isn't an argument from silence, because over in Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They weren't worshiping the Lord. That had disappeared in the past a long time ago. Perhaps the Lord was one other family deity they, 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 they had, had some kind of respect for. But they were not worshiping the Lord and the Lord alone. They were worshiping other gods. Now this is a big deal, isn't it? Right? They're breaking commandment number one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh, uh, don't have any other gods before me. This is, the, this is the most important thing of all, isn't it? That we love the Lord and worship Him above all others. Uh, but they've fallen into sin. They're in rebellion against Him. Um, th- this, this sin that they're committing is the reason that God is going to send Israel into exile. God takes idolatry seriously. This, is, uh, th- this family is... A sinful, rebellious family that has no desire to serve the Lord or honor the Lord or worship the Lord or walk in righteousness before Him. They're just like every other idol-worshiping family in Ur. So what do they deserve? Terah and his kids. Abraham and the rest. They deserve the wrath and judgment of God. They don't deserve the grace of God. If you think about it, the, the, the situation that we see here in Genesis 11 is even worse than the situation right before the flood. Because there at least you had a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah. Here there's no one left, no record of anyone serving the Lord and being faithful to Him. There's nothing left but sin. And this is the chosen line. or This is supposed to be the godly line of promise that the Messiah is going to come from. The line that God has made a covenant with, but, but uh, they have fallen into sin. But God doesn't judge them. Instead, He's gracious with them. Uh, and He calls them to Himself. What we see here is that this is not, God is not operating on the basis of a covenant of works with, with, uh, uh, with this family. He is not giving them what they deserve. He is giving them grace. He's, he's showing them that in this covenant of grace, it doesn't depend on man's works. It doesn't depend on man's righteousness. It only depends on His grace to us. From first to last, it 
depends on His grace. This is a unilateral covenant, right? One direction here. God is the one being gracious. God is the one making the promises. God is the one making the commitments. God is the one who is upholding this covenant that He's made and sustaining it. He has bound Himself to this covenant of grace that He promised. And that is the character of God with us as well, brothers and sisters, and the character of His covenant with us as well. God's attitude towards us does not depend on our works, but on His grace, not on our obedience, but on, on, his, on his faithfulness and His grace to us. It's not that God is, right, the covenant we're in now is 75% the grace of God and 25% our response to it. It's 100% His grace. Yes, there have to be works in response to His grace, but it is His grace from first to last that guarantees His covenant towards us. That should fill us with encouragement and confidence. Um, Not only for our own salvation, but also for the preservation of the church. When the church looks like it's failing and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and losing its witness, it's the Lord's grace that maintains His church. And it's, it's the Lord who is gracious in His covenant uh, to, to fulfill His promises. So we're tempted to ask, Lord, what are You doing when, the church is hap- when this is happening in the church? When, when this sin or that sin is happening in my own life? The answer we're given here is, he says to us, my covenant is not preserved by your obedience or by anyone else's obedience except Christ. My covenant is sustained by my grace. So, that's the first lesson for us here. The second one is this, it is God's power, not man's, which accomplishes his saving purposes. It's God's power, not man's, which accomplishes his purposes. There's some ominous foreshadowing here in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. Um, Here in 11, verse 30, we read that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren and had no child. This is like perhaps you learned in school that um, about foreshadowing, if you're writing a story, you you have foreshadowing early on in the story to tell something that's going to happen. And if you have a gun on the mantelpiece in Act act 1, it has to be fired in Act 3. All right, that's what's happening here. The author is slipping in this note. Not just slipping it in, but underlining it. He's emphasizing it. He says it twice. Sarai was barren. By the way, that means she had no child. All right, he, he emphasizes that point for us. Um, we're going to learn, of course, in Genesis 12, God's going to make a promise to Abram and Sarai that there's going to be lots of descendants. But here, Abram's wife is barren. And so the lesson for us here is it's God's power which fulfills his purposes. Not man's ability. God's power. Um, If Abram and Sarai are going to have a child, it's only going to be because of God's supernatural power. God is is orchestrating all of it, do you see? This is the reason she's barren, so that his power is exalted. He could have chosen any other woman in in the world to be the one who would, who would uh, uh, give birth to the son of promise. He chooses a barren woman to show it's his, it's his power. And, and this is going to happen over and over in, um, in Israel's history and over the course of the Bible's history. We see all these stories where something so similar is going on. 
Uh, you can think of, uh, it happens again uh, with, with, with Isaac and Rebecca. It happens again with uh, um, uh, Samson's parents. It happens with, uh, it happens with uh, the birth of Samuel to Hannah. It happens over and over. And then, of course, most of all, it happens in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, um, laid in a manger, a man crucified and buried in order to save God's people from their sins. What is this? It's God showing that, that in, in, it's his power, not man's strength. Right? He's using the, the weak things of the world to bring to nothing the things that are, that, that are strong. Uh, he's, he's using what is low and what is despised to accomplish his purposes so that he gets the glory. And again, so we take that lesson and we, we, we apply it to the situation we're living in between the promise and the fulfillment. Living in the gap between promise and the reality that's coming. We look around, we see weakness. Weakness in ourselves. Weakness in our, uh, weakness in our church, perhaps. Weakness in, our, in, in the wider church. Where is God? What's He doing? Is He working? Well, yes, He's working. He works in weakness. He delights to work in, in weak things and humble things and lowly things. This is so much on Paul's mind in 2 Corinthians. Um, he says this. Uh, of course, he's wrestling with the Lord. Um, he, he's asking the Lord. He's praying to the Lord three times. Remove this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, this suffering that he's experiencing. And he prays three times, Lord, take this away. And the Lord's response is, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's in our weakness, not in our strength, that the Lord's power comes and, uh, and is at work in us. It's in that valley of humiliation that he is really at work in our lives. It's not when we feel up to the task and when we feel like our church is up to the task. It's when we feel weak and incapable and unable to do it at all unless he is with us and helping us. Our whole salvation depends on him and only on him. Our families, our spouses' salvation, our children's salvation depends on Him and only on Him. Um, the growth and health of our church depends only on Him. Our power can do nothing. It's only in our weakness His power manifests itself, and that's when He accomplishes His purposes. And that's a great comfort. He will do His will by His power for His glory and so we watch and we wait and we pray and we work in obedience with all the might that He works in us, relying on Him. Third lesson to see here is this. Sin, no matter how wide it spreads and how dominant it becomes, is no match for the grace and power of God. Sin, no matter how wide it spreads and how dominant it becomes, is no match for the power and grace of God. This has been a theme throughout Genesis already that we've seen. Cain murders Abel. Looks like the seed of the woman has been crushed by the seed of the serpent, and the whole thing's over from the get-go. But of course, the Lord continues His grace by His power. He continues the promised line. We see the, the after Cain murders Abel, we see Cain's descendants. They flourish and they grow and they get technology and they, 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 they exponentially increase in their sinfulness and their celebration of their sinfulness. Of course, you have his seventh grandson celebrating, singing songs about how he takes vengeance on people ruthlessly. And then it continues all the way up to the flood, this spread of sin. 
We see it after the flood as well. The Tower of Babel. The spread of sin through the nations. The line of promise looks like it's just swallowed up by this sinful world. But God is still in control, isn't He? Right? Even at this point in the story, when, when it seems like um, His promises have just disappeared and He's not working at all and, and, and there's no remnant at all left, He's still in control. No sin is, is too much for Him to overcome. And all it takes, right? All it takes is a single word to Abram. And there's grace breaking in. Blessing breaking in. Promise coming. Right? Just one sovereign word of His grace is all it takes. And again, this is one of those doctrines we've got to stick in the essential survival kit of doctrines in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment that we find ourselves living in. Sin looks stronger. Looks stronger in my own heart sometimes. Looks stronger in the world. Looks stronger in the church. Looks stronger in my home. Perhaps you saw the headline, I don't know if it was last week or sometime recently, that uh, Christians are predicted to be a minority in the United States in a few decades, that the trends are all showing the professing Christians, churches shrinking. Um, and, uh, and of course, we all start to get worried about it. We're losing our influence. We're losing our, 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 our cultural capital. We're losing ground. God is not losing ground. No sin is a match for him. No evil is a match for him. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. No matter who the president is or where the country's trending or what's happening in the world, the outcome is not in doubt. He is sovereign. His power and his grace uh, uh, will, will win the day. That's what we hang on to in that gap, waiting for the fulfillment of the promises. Fourth lesson that we get here. God prepares His people for the works that He has for them. God prepares His people for the works He has for them. This is the fourth and final thing to take away here from this passage in Genesis. God prepares His people for the work that He has for them. Before Abram even knows that God is at work in his life, God is preparing him for what's ahead. God is at work in his family. God is at work on him even before the call comes. Um, in chapter 11, verses 31 to 32, we read about Terah, his father, that he takes Abram and, and, uh, and his brother and their wives, and they leave the land of Ur, and they're on their way towards Canaan. And they stop in Haran, and they stay there. They don't go the rest of the way, uh, not yet. We don't know why Terah decided to move his family there, but it just shows us that, um, that, that God is already in his providence working this out, isn't he? He's preparing Abram. Abram already knows what it's like to pick up and move before God's call comes. Uh, Abram already has, somewhere in his mind, he, Canaan is already a destination for him. God's already been at work, carefully preparing him for this. God's been at work in Sarai's life, hasn't he? He's made her barren, given her that grief to carry, that shame to carry. And he has a purpose in it. He's preparing her for a glorious promise to be fulfilled in her. In both of these cases, with Abram and Sarai, think of the, the difficulty that would have been involved and the pain and the grief that this would have caused. Hard to leave your hometown and go somewhere else. Um, hard to be childless, especially, especially in that society. Maybe they wondered if the gods were angry with them. 
singled out they must have felt for shame and suffering. But they weren't aware of it, but God was preparing them for something. We see this in Moses' life, don't we, as well? God sends them out into the wilderness for 40 years to learn some self-control, to learn how to tend sheep, and uh, to learn his way in the desert and how to survive in the desert. Uh, God has a purpose. Moses probably felt like he was missing out uh, out there in the desert, but the Lord had a purpose in it, didn't he? Uh, we see it in David, tending sheep, little runt brother, stuck tending the sheep when his big brothers are off fighting. But the Lord is preparing him to be a shepherd of the people of Israel and to trust him and trust his power. And then this is also how the Lord works in us, isn't it? He prepares us for the works he has ahead of us. We read this earlier, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God is preparing good works for his people to do, and he's preparing his people to do those good works. So we ask, well, what is he preparing us for? What's he preparing me for right now? What's he preparing you for? Well, we don't, we don't know exactly. Uh, we might have guesses about what the Lord might be preparing us for, but we don't exactly know yet. Ia Dugan writes this, commenting on this. He says, God's purposes are certainly not always transparent at the time. Moses probably had no idea why he was stuck in the desert with the sheep. Abram could scarcely have discerned the higher hand, bringing him from Ur to Haran, and Sarai's tears were not answered with an explanation of the need for her present pain. Only after, with the benefit of hindsight, would they be able to look back and discern how God had indeed done all things well in their lives. In the meantime, they simply had to cling to God, believing, though not understanding. Believing but not understanding. Believing he's preparing me for what he has for me, even though I don't understand what it's going to be. Trusting. He knows what he's doing. He knows why he's brought this providence into my life, and he is preparing me for something he has for me. Brothers and sisters, you should take encouragement from this, right? He's preparing you. He's at work in you, preparing you for the work he has for you. Whatever season or stage of life you're in, you don't you don't graduate from the preparation stage to the to the now you do the good works stage in the Christian life, right? He brings us from one to the other, um, and, and whatever stage we're in is a preparation for the next thing that he has for us to do. It might be a sweet thing, the preparation he, he might be, have you in might be a sweet and comforting and uh, an encouraging thing. Um, I remember a friend of, a friend of mine uh, had a season of, of particularly sweet fellowship with the Lord. The Lord was just was, was near to them, was encouraging them, um, and really, really drawing them close to himself. And a- after, that first, after that had happened for, for a while, they lost a, a really dear loved one. And, and they saw that as the Lord had been preparing me for this. He had been really speaking comfort to my heart and encouraging me. And, and, and so that when this grief came, it hurt. But he, he had me ready for it. Right? That's the way the Lord works sometimes. Sometimes it's a hard preparation. The school of hard knocks he's bringing us through. Um, giving us difficult things to bear. Too much for us to bear, perhaps, it might feel like. Um, the Lord often does give us more, much more than we can handle. 
because um, He wants to supply His grace to us in our need. Um, sometimes He prepares us by having us do something hard and worthwhile, and then He gives us something harder and more worthwhile. There's a scene in The, uh, in, uh, the Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis where the main character, a boy named Shasta, is just, he's just done something that was hard, and he did it bravely, and he did it well. And then he's immediately assigned to go do something harder and scarier. And he was kind of hoping to take a break. But, the, but he's, he's told, if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and harder and better one. And I think that is often the way the Lord works. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God brings us comfort in our suffering so that we can comfort others when they suffer. He's preparing us. He prepares us through sweet times. He prepares us through, through hard times and sad times. So whatever season you're in, He is at work preparing you. It might be an ordinary time, and He's equipping and training you through that. He is not wasting His time in your life. He's not wasting any part of the season that you're in. He has a purpose, and He will make it plain. It might not be plain until after uh, when we look back on it, but He has a purpose, and His purpose is going to be accomplished in you. Brothers and sisters, this is another crucial part, right? We've been talking about how do we stay faithful as we live in the, the, the gap between the promise God has made and the fulfillment of that promise. We trust that He's at work in us, that He's preparing us for what He's bringing next, uh, that, 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 that uh, no season of our life is useless or pointless, that it's all preparing us for what He has for us. But even as we hold fast to these promises we've laid out here, and even as we, we say, Lord, I know you're preparing me for something. I'm going to hold on to that promise. Um, it's not the strength of our holding on to that promise that sustains us in the gap between promise and reality, is it? It's not the strength of our faith in these promises and our ability to, to hang on to them that is going to get us through. It is His grace to us. We often let go of these promises. We often slip. We often... Um, uh, fall back into sin. We, 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 we often still love the present world, forget that heaven is our home, and uh, doubt that God is working in us, and we get impatient with Him. We think He's not doing anything, and we doubt Him. We try to force His hand. We often fail and falter in our trust and in our faithfulness, even as we'll see Abraham do so often. So it's not our hold on His promise that sustains us. It's the Savior's hold on us. It was Jesus' hold on Abraham and his hold on us as well. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. He lived much of his life, didn't he, um, between the promise and the reality. He was the fulfillment of all the promises. But how does he spend the first 30 or so years of his life? Relative obscurity. Learning to uh, honor his parents and to obey the Lord. Learning the Scriptures. Learning, perhaps, to be a carpenter like his father. Right? 30 years. More than, more, much, much more than the three years of his earthly ministry. He spent out of most people's sight. Didn't know who he was. He was, he was just faithfully living for the Lord. Knowing the Lord was preparing him for what he had ahead of him. Holding fast to that. And he did it perfectly. And he trusted the Lord perfectly. He trusted what the Lord was doing in his life. He trusted the Lord's timing in his life. Uh, he, he trusted that the preparation was worth it. Uh, he, he, he didn't let go of, of, of that faithfulness. He didn't falter in his trust of God, knowing that God would bring him uh, to the reality uh, 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 that he had been promised. 
And then in his suffering and his death, he hung on to that promise still. And then he was raised up in glory. And he's there as our Savior who sympathizes with us as we are in the gap and who has all grace for us to enable us to trust him. And that's where, that's where our faith rests. So hold fast to the promises and to the Savior of these promises. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would indeed give us the eyes of faith, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, in his perfect righteousness as our Savior, and faith like him in the promises that you've given. Lord, we pray you'd strengthen us, strengthen us as we wait on you. We pray that you would continue your work in us and that you would fulfill every purpose you have for us for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen.